So welcome once again to the Sparks by Ignium podcast. I'm Phil Rhodes, your host. You can contact me at phil at igniumconsult.com. That's ignium, I-G-N-I-U-M, consult, C-O-N-S-U-L-T.com. Uh, drop me a note. I'm always looking for feedback on this podcast. I'm also looking for guests who you think will be relevant for me to talk to, to learn about how we can build the value of your business when value is not just about making money, it's about what you bring to the world as well. The Ignium Sparks podcast is about purpose. It's about inclusion. It's about building something that's better. We talk about bringing humanity back to business. And my guest on today's podcast, Julie Kratz, is just that. We talk about diversity and inclusion. Julie runs a business called Next Pivot Point, and our role in life is all around bringing inclusion back to the workplace. Say back, because it was there once, but we've got away from it. So from her point of view, we want to look at what we need to do. We know from a humanity point of view, we should be doing it. We know from an emotional point of view, we should be doing it, or at least some of us do. But some businesses out there are still not being as inclusive as they need. The facts and figures speak for themselves. A recent report that Julie references says that you can increase profitability by 21 to 36% by bringing diversity and inclusion more as an open agenda into your business. So why wouldn't you do it from that point of view? But we know it's from a humanity point of view that really makes a difference. We also know that 70% of Gen Zs that are coming to the workplace today are demanding more inclusion. Therefore, it's imperative that we do it now. So as you go through this podcast with me, talking to Julie, just listen out for her curiosity. You'll be fascinated by our thoughts around what we need to do and how we can enable men to be more inclusive in their own right, because they're the ones who are driving some of this change because they need it most. I found this conversation challenging. For that challenging because I'm one of those men, a white, middle-class British male, running businesses, working out there, looking at how to do things. So I found it challenging talking to Julie because it challenged some of my assumptions and beliefs about the world. Things where I thought I was getting it right. I'll question myself to think, maybe I'm wrong. What does I need to do more of? So I want to try and build out how do I become more of an ally to those people around me to build my own words around diversity and inclusion to help me not just build my business, but to become a better person and think more about other people as I do so. Enjoy the show. Drop me a note. Let me know your thoughts. So welcome back to the Sparks by Ignium podcast. I'm Phil Rose, your host, and today I'm joined by Julie Kratz. Uh, Julie runs a business called Next Pivot Point, and she is a diversity trainer and speaker. So I'm delighted to have her on here because we want to talk about culture, and often we talk about growing the value of a business and talking about running a better business. We talk about actually, let's get the culture right in the first place so you know where you're aiming at and you can get the right people on the bus to deliver the value for the future. Even if you never want to sell your business, it makes your business a better and a nice place to run. So Judy, welcome to the Sparks by Ignium podcast. I introduce you there as a diversity trainer and speaker. We're going to talk about a lot more about that, but what does it mean in a nutshell? Oh, thank you for that question. Yeah, I mean, when I think about diversity and terms like equity and inclusion, once they get thrown around in the States uh, here where I live quite a bit, it's really about diversity of perspective. Mm. Uh, I think oftentimes when we hear the word diversity, uh, a lot of times well-intentioned white men (laughs) might think, oh, well, I'm not diverse, quote unquote. And it's like, well, no, I mean, we all have our own diverse perspective we can bring to the conversation. Uh, And a lot of times it just gets labeled as race or gender, you know, non-white or male or, you know, other um, pieces of the gender spectrum. But there's way more to the diversity mm-hmm. conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's your background, your experiences, the voice that you bring that others may not have. And we know with diverse teams, they just simply outperform uh, teams that are not as diverse. 
And I, th and I think that's one of the big points. You know, a lot of the, the work I've done over the last 15 years has been around uh, making businesses better places to be. Uh, and I also talk about, you know, we grow the value of businesses. And then I would say, even if you never want to sell. And when we talk about the model of growing value, we talk about, you know, if, we, if I imagine a pyramid, the thing, that, the thing that's at the base of the pyramid is that foundation. And I talk about, you know, the talent, the capability and the culture, getting the right people on the bus who want to be part of your journey. And I think so many businesses have struggled with this over the years about who do they want on the bus? Who do they need on the bus? And how they build that diverse mixture. Um, and I think this is one of the key things. And, and, and a lot of my work now is around how do you bring the humanity back to business? Uh, and we talk about purpose and say that, you know, the key people I want to work with are those who want to build a business that has a purpose above and beyond making money. Because I know that if you do that, you're also going to build a better business. But yes, you'll make more money. You can invest into better causes in the future. But if your purpose is just about money, yeah, actually, you're not likely to get that key thing for you. So, so diversity, I think, is one of the key bits there. Um, so, for, so for me, in that case, let, let's start at the beginning. How do organizations deepen their knowledge of what diversity means? Because we've heard a lot about it over the last 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, but still people don't get it. Mm -mm. where do we start no I think there's a natural defensiveness uh, that mm -hmm. comes up in the conversation you know I talk about it as um a zero-sum game mentality which yeah. is simply isn't true a lot of times people will say well you know if we want to increase diversity then we're going to have to let go of people that are already here somehow there's going to be less seats for people that aren't quote-unquote diverse and that zero-sum game mentality you know my pie slice versus your pie slice it's just not how it actually works. Uh, the pie gets bigger and there's more seats at the table for more people yeah. when you have diverse teams. And we were talking about numbers like a 21 to 36% profitability lift. Wow. Um, and that's based on McKinsey's data. They've studied this for a number of years and they mm -hmm. find with the gender, just gender and race alone against industry peers. So when you bring more people in, especially that senior leadership team, uh, oftentimes, again, here in the States, we call it, you know, pretty male, pretty pale, yeah. <laughs> sometimes a little stale. Too, yeah. You're really just getting like the same ideas, the same perspectives around a meeting room. And, you know, we can just do better by bringing in a few more voices. We're not talking about ousting people and making yeah. room, but just bringing in some more voices and yeah. being really intentional. Uh, the companies that are really successful at this are very intentional. They're very consistent over time with this. And that senior leadership team, especially that CEO, is actively engaged in this mm. conversation. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you say about being intentional, because I think this is the thing, one of the things I've seen, you know, if I if I bring in this word purpose, a lot of people talk about purpose, but they just pay lip service to it. And I think with you talk about, you mentioned equity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion. Um I think in the past, people have just paid lip service to these words because they thought it's what they have to do, what they should be doing. So when you talk about 21 to 36% profitability increase just through gender and race alone, that's a big incentive that people should be paying attention to. But actually more than that, they should just be doing it anyway. So, so you know, the money's one side, but actually, you know, if you come back to my phrase, bring humanity back to business, actually mm -hmm. it, should be, it should just be the way we run our businesses. 
Agreed. Yeah. Phil, I, I talk about it as the business case and the human case, yeah. literally when I'm presenting this content to organizations and helping them be more inclusive, yeah, it's two sides of the same coin, right? I start with the business case because like it's people's attention. There's innovation data, decision-making data, profitability, revenue data. I mean, there's no shortage of data that shows the business case mm-hmm. for this. And that data honestly has been around for a long time and hasn't changed anything. My hypothesis on that is the reason it hasn't changed anything is because you know, humans are motivated by emotion and the human case is, is where I really want leaders to dial in. So I share my own human case, uh, which is a a drawing my, my daughter drew shortly after the murder of George Floyd and just a lot of way overdue racial reckoning here in the States and around the world. And she drew a picture of her asking a kid of color to be her friend. And it just struck me as like, wow, like she sees this as additive. Like (laughs) she sees this as like a natural, like, I want to be your friend. Like that's, I don't want to be, you know, a white savior necessarily, but I think she really saw it as like, I want kids that are different than me. I want to be around diversity. And I think back to your point about humanity, I think somewhere along the way, as we grow up, we lose that. Uh, we lose that interest in difference. We learn to judge difference um, rather than be curious about it. And we kind of find ourselves into our in groups that are mm-hmm. much mirrored in yeah. who we are. And that childlike curiosity, if we could just stay curious a little longer, right? And so that's my coaching to yeah, leaders. Like, just yeah. stay curious a little longer rather than think, oh, why did they do things this way? Not the way I do it. Yeah. Well, like think about like, just stop there. Like, why do they do it that way rather than think about your way versus their way? That's the beauty of differences is that when we look to differences, we can learn something versus when we're just looking for things we have in common or similarities, we're just reinforcing what we already know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, you know, we you use that, you know, that phrase pale, pale, stale, and whatever it might be. In fact, I heard it on one of your, so, so I forgot to say to listeners as well, Judy also runs a podcast, which we'll talk about later. So I listened to your podcast and one of the episodes, you you actually talk about exactly that phrase as well. So I think this is saying, and we've, we've used the same phrase in the UK. It says, you know, a lot of the boardrooms in the past have been that pale, stale, middle-class white Englishman. Um, and there is a change, you know, we, we are thankfully seeing more women on boards. We're seeing more people of color on boards we're seeing more inclusion but it's not there yet there's a there's a barrier to change there and and you know we've, we've seen a big shift over the last year in 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 the way the pandemic has changed people's outlook on the world um but at that point there you've got your daughter additive um can i come back to explore that because i think that's one of the key things is and i think you know young people today i've got two young kids 15 and 18 um i i think they see in the world in a very different place to i do it you know, I was 50 last year. Um, I know I didn't look it, thank you for saying. But, you know, at the end of the day, 50 is just an age to me. I don't feel 50. I feel like I'm 21. I sometimes try and act like that as well. So age, I think, is very, it's, it's dependent on who you are. But actually, it's, it's a mindset. But I look at my children at 15 or 18, and I do think they see the world very differently. They have a, a different set of eyes to see the world through than we do you know i was brought up in the 70s and i often say to people i was brought in the 70s by parents of the 1940s so their mindset their view of the world was very much that 1940s late war era what's your thoughts on that in terms of you know the, the way we see the world as it see it as it is rather than the way we want to see it yeah well you're right generational thinking which is by the way a dimension of diversity is this whole generational component 
um, there's some remarkable data on Gen Z, uh, the latest generation to come into the workforce. And I use this data a lot when working with clients because it again goes back to the business case. Um, they increasingly, your daughter's generations identify as, um, you know, is gender non-binary, is recognizing gender as a spectrum rather than just male and female. Yeah. Um, and the, the best data too is that north of 70% of them demand diversity and inclusion in their workplace. So they're not willing to compromise that, at least for now. <laughs> you know, I think my, my uh, I was a late millennial and I think I entered the workforce with that same expectation. It just kind of got beat out of me over time. <laughs> but millennials tried and they're like gave up to the baby boomers, right? It was like, all right, fine. I'll just keep working and do it your way. But now is what we really are starting to have an exodus of that huge generation of baby boomers. Gen X now leading um, and stepping into those leadership roles. And Gen X are kind of rebellious. You know, they kind of have, at least here in the States, the more independent mindset, open to change. Um, and millennials certainly have been beating this drum for a long time and Gen Z. So I think we, I'm cautiously optimistic about the future because we have kicked the can to future generations many times before. Thank to your point. Yeah. Gen X millennials, you know, however you look at generations, we've thought like these kids are going to change it all, but they still inherit the structures and the systems that unfortunately work for one demographic way more than another demographic. So those systems have to be changed. And those systems were built <laughs> to keep certain people in power. They're not easy to change overnight. And, and, and that's interesting because that, that's, that's quite a shock to me when I hear that. And so, you know, those systems would be built to be, keep certain people in power and certain types of people in power. And I think we see that. And we, you know, we, we in the UK look at the world, you know, from a UK centric point of view and you in the US have that, that view. But I think that same trait exists across wherever you are, the mm -hmm. systems we've got. Can you tell me a bit more about that in terms of the way those systems emerge in business rather than look at it from a political angle, looking from a business angle? What, what, what do you see? Yeah, you're right. I mean, people go to like politics, like, oh, I can't influence that. That's so big. And I think this is the whole conundrum of what I, the space that I'm in with diversity, equity, inclusion, self versus systems, right? I talk a lot about how you can be an ally and be there for people and lead from where you're at as an individual within yourself. But there's this whole like obvious thing that these systems need to change. And what that looks like inside a typical organization is really every element of the employee experience. And I know this is near and dear to your heart. Mm. You know, it's everything from how they're recruited to how they're hired um, to how they're promoted, to how pay is decided, um, and ultimately separation. And of course, there's more experiences. I'm simplifying it here. Yeah. But when you peel back the onion and just the recruiting and hiring process, you know, I have clients here in the States that only recruit at Ivy League schools, the fancy schools that like just, you know, clearly you know, there's a socioeconomic privilege and a yeah. high correlation demographically with those schools. So despite the best of intentions, these systems that have been set up really aren't built to embrace diversity and be inclusive. And sometimes it's a painful process to come to terms with, like, we've got to change how we do things. If we want diversity, by definition, we have to do things differently. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I think that's why we've seen such a slow tick in diversity because these systems have not changed. These systems are, 
ingrained in people's minds. And at some point they've got to be, you know, you got to take a close look. You got to rattle. You got to change things a little bit, whether that's the, simply the schools you recruit yeah. from, yeah. the qualifications that are required or not required also send major signals of who we want and who we don't want. Mm-hmm. But every part of the employee experience, um, one of the clients I was very fortunate to work with, Salesforce, um, a big uh, customer relationship management company globally, a big tech company, the other CEO went on the record to say, we did a pay gap audit. I, I thought, you know, there's no way we have a pay gap between men and women. Well, well <laughs> it's like $3 million the first time they did it. And then they did it again about another 3 million gap. I think wow. to date they're close to 20 million in what they've discovered because they've realized how regularly they have to audit it. And that's like putting your money where your mouth is. Right. And I don't think a lot yeah. of companies are, are there yet. Yeah. So, so there's a whole load of things in there and you're talking about that. So just you know, that thing about Salesforce and doing that audit, it takes a lot to stand up and do that. And, you know, we've seen it in the UK, you know, the BBC is one of the, you know, the, 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 the media company in the UK that we all pay our taxes to, to fund um, and people would have different views on that, but they've done a lot around, you know, what's it mean in terms of women presenters, but also looking at the pay per presenter. Now they're a, they're an organisation who are governed and regulated by the in, in the UK, so they have to serve it. But even so, we're seeing lots of differences in their pay. Um, but the bit you mentioned there, which which really struck me, you said about you know where we're hiring from. So in the UK, of course, we've got Oxford and Cambridge are the two big universities. So a lot of people will talk about you know we we only hire from certain schools. You mentioned Ivy League in the US. Um, there's an elitist element to some of those schools as well, just because of the cost to go there and the way they've been brought up over the years. And we're seeing some change in the UK around that now. There's, there's, there's been um, talk recently of, of various people, Stormzy for one, funding uh, individuals from black and ethnic minority areas to go through and go to university because they couldn't afford it in the past. So there's, there's you know, pop stars making money and then saying, hey, we need to change this. But this, this point around you know, people actually going out to recruit from certain areas because they believe that's where they, they get the right story. That then goes against what you said earlier. I'm just flicking back on it. So you said about, you know, when we were children, you know, we want to want to look at things and be, you know, said childlike curiosity and not doing it the same way as I've always done it, trying to find other ways of doing it. So that's the, that's surely, that's the integral piece. We need to find that way of just saying, hey, this person could do it differently with me. It's, it will achieve a result. It may be different to my result, but it's a result. Well, the status quo is so easy to reinforce. And another human trait, I mean, back to humanity, some of the natural things we're wired is to keep things the same so that we feel safe. And as human beings, you know, when they're saber-toothed tigers and we were like truly in a primitive state, that was helpful thinking because you might die or get attacked by another tribe. You know, don't eat those berries. But <laughs> now doing things differently is actually a, a very positive thing. Yeah. But our brain still goes back to that like hard wiring. I've seen it done this way 20 times. That's the way, that's the way. And with diversity, it really requires you to rewire your brain, create new pathways. And that requires a lot of energy. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I joke with people, <laughs> I'm a hard worker, right? I, 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 when I was in corporate, I worked, you know, very regularly, 10 hour days and weekends and things like I earned my stripes. And that's unfortunately like a badge of honor <laughs> here as an American, like work hard, you yeah. know, work all the time. But now running my own business for the last seven years, I'm at a point where I work about six to seven hours a day during the week. And I don't work on the weekends. And sometimes I even take an extra day off. And 
the reason is, is the mental energy to stay in that curiosity and learning mode and to have really hard conversations about social change and systemic change inside organizations. It takes a lot out of me. I think like one hour of this work is the equivalent to like four or five, like just doing a project. You know, sometimes I'm like, I just want to like do a project that doesn't require like a lot of thinking and a lot of unthinking, the unlearning too, that's required. Um, So it's hard. And I think that's why going back to youth where yeah. it's easier to do that earlier in life. And by no means, uh, if you're older, like me, you know, you can still do it later. It just, it's kind of exhausting and it's, it's a continual muscle you have to build too. Yeah. Like some days are like, I've arrived, I've got it. And then you slide back into that status quo mentality. Yeah. And part of it's just fighting our own humanity and, mm-hmm. and that wiring and being open and really intentional back to that word intentional about welcoming change. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting point, isn't it? That intentional about welcoming change, because, you know, we, we have to challenge the status quo, you know, in, in any business, when we, when we go into a business in what I do, a lot of the time is, you know, it's about challenging the way they run the business in a, in a good way to say, okay, have you considered this? Uh, and, you know, before, before you and I started talking officially just now, I mentioned about the book I've read, which is, you know, why we sleep. Um, and when you talked about the corporate world, you know, doing the 10 hour days, Actually, we need to challenge that as well, because that's not good for society. We know that businesses can do better when people get more sleep. And when you look at the facts around sleep, we know that those people who sleep less are less rational as well. So the, the, the conundrum in my mind now is we've got a lot of underslept people, if that's the right word, that's a strange word, underslept, um, underslept people who are uh, coming into business to run the business and making irrational decisions. And if they if they are not getting the sleep they need, then they're making snap decisions based on their original map of the world. And therefore, they're not going to be challenging the status quo because it's hard work. So actually, there's almost this thing that we need to be challenging the hard work ethic of multiple hours in a day and saying, how do we deliver hard work from a point of view of productivity? And I think people could make a better choice around diversity and inclusion because they would say it's worthwhile. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you raised some really good points there. I mean, just, yeah. Like the the rhetoric we have around sleep and what mental yeah. health and well-being has been so unhelpful over the years. Like sleep yeah. when you're dead, yeah. you know. It, it's just um I, I can totally see that connection with emotional intelligence and short-term thinking too. I think one of the things you're drawing out here is, you know, when people make snap decisions, they're almost always short-term decisions, um, not decisions that are going to you know, stand the test of time. Long-term is that back to instant gratification. And when we're sleep deprived and not taking care of our mental health and working too much, we make a lot of those short-term decisions. And all you need to do is look at Wall yeah. Street and how decisions are made about stock price. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's that's also one of the underpinnings of why diversity is such a slow, like, trickle because it's a long game, right? So investing in it, you're not going to get the, you're not going to get the results next quarter or next year, but like five years from now, Mm -hmm. probably going to see some great change. So so, so interesting. That comes back almost full circle to my view about purpose again, and, and challenging that notion about purpose is just about adding shareholder value. When I did my MBA 20 odd years ago now, you know, we we talked about Milton Friedman and, and think that 
purpose of business was to, was to increase shareholder value. And there's been a big move around that. And I've mentioned this on the podcast before that uh, back in 2019, 181 US businesses signed up to a charter to say that they were going to challenge that. They were going to look at purpose above and beyond making money and do things differently. But the point there is you may get short-term lack of profit, but actually the long-term will be better. So somebody has to make a stand and say, we're going to do this for the good of the world, for the good of humanity. And I think that that takes that takes courage for a lot of CEOs who are having to challenge the way the business runs, or more importantly, it takes challenge or, or takes courage for those who are not the CEO to challenge the CEO to say, we can't do it like this anymore. We need to be doing something different. Yeah. And that's a cultural shift. Yeah. And well, and if you have diverse perspectives around that table, that's more likely to happen to that long-term yeah. view. Yeah. But I guess only if you've got those diverse perspectives in the first place. So as you said earlier, you know, the, the, the baby boomers are moving on. Actually, the Gen X, Gen, Gen Y and Gen Z is coming through. Actually, we've got a different type of person in there now who can make different decisions and see the world differently in some cases. Yeah. Well, another point um, that's really, I think, essential to this conversation to build up with what you said is thinking about corporations and organizations mm. as driving social change. So there's a lot of evidence that shows, you know, you look back in history and how things were changed um, outside forces. Uh, it's really hard um, to politically change things. I mean, again, those systems are set up with checks and balances and things that we didn't want a lot of change, at least yeah. here in the States. It's it's very hard to change things politically, um, especially at a national level. But what's easier is we look within the walls of existing organizations. And if you can drive social change, and this is a real call to action for the you know big global, especially global companies. I mean, talk about doing the right thing. You want to reflect your customer base, don't you? Yeah. Don't you want to be in sync with like the communities of which you want to serve? Like you're probably not representing those, at least to the top of your organization or even the middle layers. So really thinking about organizations as key to solving yeah. the diversity problem because we can create change much, much more quickly inside organizations, especially those growing organizations, the medium-sized organizations. Um, but there's certainly some excellent examples um, like the Salesforce mm. story. Um, and there's been several organizations that have really done this to do the right thing and to really appeal to their customer. And they, that belief system gets ingrained in the organization and the C-suite acts in a way that's consistent with that belief system over time. And it just starts to hum but it takes time. It still takes time. There's no, um, you know, people love to ask me this question, like what's the like next big thing for diversity or what's the trend or like the magic bullet is almost what people are asking me for. And there isn't one, there just isn't, it's not a check yeah. the box. It's not a one and done. This is a long yeah. game and you've got to be committed to it long-term because back to what you said, that belief system, because it's the right thing to do. And I think it's interesting. It's, we know it's the right thing to do inherently, you and I can have this conversation rationally, but we know there are some people out there who aren't having this rational conversation. So, so what is it What is it we can do from an outside to influence some of this? Because you mentioned that social change, doing it to organizations. You and I both work as coaches in different fields. So we're going into companies to do that. What is it we can do to influence that change from the outside? Is there, are there steps? Are there things? Are there things we can say? Mm -hmm. What would listeners, what would you know, <laughs> listen to this podcast, what are the things they can do and notice and, and stand up for? It just might make a change. I know I, I get in my insular, you know, diversity commu community and I think everybody thinks this way. <laughs> yeah, you go spend time outside. <laughs> like, oh no, they're not on yeah. board with this. Oh, okay. 
So you're right. And I think there's, we're in a polarized environment. Unfortunately, people have political, politicized uh, diversity um, as into it's a liberal thing or, you know, it's, it's a human thing. This is not a political thing is how I usually start the conversation. And then, you know, people have to be willing to listen. So you can't want somebody, will somebody Mm. to change. I've had a number of unfortunate conversations with family members and people that just, you know, despite their best efforts, don't get it and probably don't want to get it. So my coaching to people is don't spend time with the people that don't want to get it because you're just going to like ram your head into the wall and lose your energy. And yeah, you're not going to sleep at night and (laughs) mental health might suffer if you're like me last summer. It's like, how can you not get this? Spent where real opportunity is, is to spend time with the magic middle. So how I, how I classify these folks are, these are people that want to get it, but don't get it yet. Right. They, they might've grown up like 75% of white people here in the United States live in white communities. That's a huge problem for obvious reasons. You're just not even given the exposure and that's by design. We're kept away from each other Mm -hmm. on purpose. Mm -hmm. It's been redlined over the years and reinforced with property taxes. I could go on, but get exposure, right? Get to know people that are different than you. So a very tangible thing to do for, you know, well-intentioned allies and training is, you know, reach out to people that are different ethnicities, races, gender identities, LGBTQ, you name it, like just diversify who you spend time with you will see real tremendous change and then use your voice. So oftentimes, you know, somebody that wants to be a white ally um, for people of color, I'll just ask, what should I be doing more of? And, you know, there's certainly an education component to this, you know, doing some due diligence, reading, listening to podcasts like this, but more importantly, they will say, speak up because when you speak up, Julie, there's something about the white face talking about anti-racism that just resonates with other white people. And like, I say Mm. it, you know, it's really like self-serving is how they see it for me, which is really frustrating that that comes across that we're still there where it seems self-serving for me. It's like, well, literally what's, what skin in the game do I have? Um, and it's, so it just gets attention when you speak up. And then the last thing I'd say is there's amazing voices out there whether on social media or in the, just the media you mm. consume in general, there's amazing people doing this work and speaking about this work and authoring books, amplify the voices. You know, if I see a great documentary or a great book, I'm, I'm always happy to share it on social media or like reading lists or, you know, with a friend even amplify the work that's already being done. You don't have to create this wheel. There's plenty of people already out there. So I I think sometimes we make that mistake as allies is we, we accidentally make it about us when we speak up. So leverage the work that's already being done. Um, chances are, you know, I'll try to have a good thought from here and there, but I'll, I'll Google it and be like, Oh yeah, someone already said that that's <laughs> amplify that one. That person don't claim it for your I, own. I love that. And it, it's something you mentioned about, you know, um, you said about having skin in the game of speaking up, but the point you mentioned about amplifying the voice, because actually the, the world is making the right noises already in lots of areas, the world, whatever that means, the, the people out there doing it. And, and, and you're right, as I sit here as a white man, 50-year-old, you know, 50-year-old middle-class white man, whatever you want to call it, um, but actually amplifying it and promoting diversity and inclusion across everything we do as individuals and standing for something 
sounds to me the message you're saying there in terms of don't just stand back passively, but actually be active in promoting what you're hearing. Well, and that's been a challenge with the term allies in general is unfortunately it's gotten misused over the years. Um, I personally did a ton of research on the term before landing on it. And it was not a perfect term, but how it's been used as performative allyship in the past is like, much like you said, stand on the sideline, watch, I'll read my book, listen to my podcast and then hide, you know, and we've seen yeah, this yeah. here in the States. I mean, globally, like look at what was happening in Black Lives Matter a year ago versus now. Who was, ta- you, you know, if you were attending protests and saying stuff on social media, getting woke, you know, are you yeah, still awake? Yeah. <laughs> Where are you? Because I don't see a lot of activity. It's very unfortunate. And active allies is what we need. People that don't go away, that stay committed to this work, that remind themselves of the the tenuous nature of it. Uh, and they keep using their voice. They keep mm. speaking out. And, and it's interesting to say about, you know, the, the, the active allies. I, I was, um, I was marshalling a run on uh, on Saturday morning called Park Run in the UK. And I was one of the marshals and uh, there was, I don't know, 250, 300 people running around the park, which is something that happened nine o'clock every Sunday morning. If anyone wants to go and get fit, join up Park Run. But there was a lady there with the Black Lives Matter t-shirt on. And it struck me because she stood out just because she had it on. And I was thinking actually a year ago, a lot more people might've been having that on their t-shirts as well. So, you know, I don't know who this person was, but I saw it there and I congratulate you for doing it. But in some ways, um, the human mind we easily forget and i think you know we we we, we always know that, that that often people forget the good that's going on and also forget the bad because then that's why it reciprocates and come back again comes back again um so i wonder whether there's something has to be done there to you know to, to really become active allies and and go out of our way to look mm-hmm. for opportunities because if we're just doing it passively we may just miss it so we've actually almost there's got to be an active element to it which is your active allies bit about it is what I, I love what you said there. And I don't know how to do that, but I guess it's just yeah. a case of going out looking for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, again, self versus system systems are hard to take down. Yeah. I mean, your voice helps yeah. over time, but diversifying who you spend time with will, will build some natural connective tissue to this work and that muscle to be more active because you're going to have more people in your network that you care about that are different than you. Um, and then it's that voice amplification and the education piece that I think just staying on the journey, I'm not asking to join a book club or, you know, actually that could be a performative allyship <laughs> thing. So for a lot of white yeah, women last yeah. summer, like, I'm going to have an anti-racism book club. I'm like, okay. Have you invited people of color into that? <laughs> have you like sought out the right books? Cause there's some problematic books. Anyway, I joke, but really, I think the more you educate yourself, you won't stay on the sidelines and that could just be, you know, a podcast a month. There's some wonderful ones out there. Um, And Phil, I'm happy to share this with you. There's a great resource list that we've curated over the years, documentaries, podcasts, short videos, books. Um, You know, it's a choose your own adventure as an ally. You know, some people learn by doing, some people learn by listening. Um, Some people learn by discussing. Think about how do you learn and just pick one thing, one thing from the list and just take some sort of action step. I think that can really, um, people just don't realize how big of a difference you can make in yeah. the world. You know, I'll have people that come back like five years after I've given a talk and I'm in a different position, obviously, but you know, five years later, they'll say, you know, I thought about the thing you said, I had a conversation with a person about this and here's something that happened that fundamentally changed our relationship or this dynamic at work. So the the amount of cascade effects that you can have 
on people by a conversation. Like I can't underscore that enough because we feel powerless. We feel like I can't make a difference, but if everyone feels like that, no one's going to make a difference. Like you can Stay yeah. with it. I, I wrote a I wrote a, a, a social media message last year sometime about a little girl walking along the beach throwing starfish back into the sea, and the message was she she was confronted by a man who said, "Why are you throwing these starfish back in? There's hundreds of them here. What difference do you make?" He said, "I made a difference to that one life." And to me, that's the story of you know we can just help one person at a time. Um, so I just want to I just want to get back in the story a bit actually, and and I want to come back to your resources. But how did you, as a as a white woman in in, in America, get involved in this this world, setting out looking at allies? What was the what was the trigger moment for you? Was it a trigger moment? Has it always been there? What happened to, to help you change mm-hmm. and think differently? You know, everyone's kind of got their own uh, diversity story, is what I call it. You know, how you find your way into this work when you wake up and see, like, oh wait, not everyone's like me, and maybe that's a good thing. Um, and that I was fortunate enough to be raised by a single mother, um, and so I didn't see from a gender perspective, honestly, within my home, I didn't see gender roles really growing up. Right? She did everything from take out the trash to you know manage the budget to clean the house. So, of course, I saw those roles in school and the media and things, but within my home, I think I just had a much more open mindset around gender. Now, uh, when I think it really woke, I, when I woke up is when I went to college, um, in the Midwest and they had a gender studies program, uh, women's studies. And I remember learning about it and just how gender was socialized, you know, girls like dolls and boys play with action figures. And, you know, I thought about just all the messages I'd learned about my gender over time. And I just really felt like this this extra special sensitivity around like, that's just not fair. And they actually, as a part of getting my minor in women's studies way back when they made you take in um, a cultural perspective course. Mm -hmm. So I took one on African women and holy smokes, was that really eye-opening? And I'll never forget like the way it was taught was not to judge because as Americans we're like, Ooh, they do this and they're so backwards. And like, that's super unhelpful. Instead, be curious about it. Instead, you know, think about why their culture might be this way and what you could do to be supportive. So all that to say, I uh, went into corporate America. (laughs) I thought, you know, we're going to change everything. You know, my mom was like, you can do anything, you know, that message. And, you know, you get to like day one in corporate America and you look around and it's 10 white guys and you in a leadership development program. You're like, hmm world doesn't feel so equal. Like what happened? And then just kept happening and happening and happening. And, you know, after 12 years, I was like, I'm exhausted. I'm just sick of having to be a different version of myself. And I want more diversity in my life and I want to feel a sense of belonging. And I love, I loved what I did. I just didn't feel included. Um, And so many people feel that way, unfortunately. And I just couldn't live my life that way. Mm. So that's when I started my business, it was a bit more focused on gender at the time. Um, but then as I got more curious and compared notes with women of color, especially men yeah. of color, much more likely to join the conversation around um, being an ally for women because they've had their own adverse experiences. So that whole path, you know, it kind of a bumble and a stumble along the way. And most recently, just deciding very much centered in our conversation and how we started as children, you know, these kids deserve better. Like, it's just not right. And my daughter's seven and she's sharing some really unfortunate things that happen every single day, you know, kids of color being picked on in the classroom, 
uh, boys saying girls can't do this. I mean, it happens so early and I just really think this next generation, I'm, I don't want to kick the can to them. I want to give them the tools, the resources that they need. So this conversation pivots very frequently. And I think that's what you have to be willing to do as an ally is to keep your ear to the ground, listen to what's happening, listen and, and think about how the world's changing and how your voice can help propel that change further. Yeah. And, and I think that bit about keeping your voice and looking at how you can propel that change further, I think is key, isn't it? And it's realizing that one, one person can make a difference and you might as well be that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, might as well be me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, you've got your screen backdrop on, I can see your book, Little Allies. Um, and so tell me a bit about that, because that's aimed at children and helping how they can go along and drive this inclusion and diversity. Tell me a bit about that book in that case, because I think that's a key fundamental about starting early. Oh, yeah. You have to have the tools and resources. So we've got this big debate going on here in our local school system. A lot of school systems are wrestling with this. There's this backlash of like, we can't teach our kids critical race theory. And there's a podcast called the 1619 Project that has all these parents up in flames. It's very strange because it's not actually a curriculum for starters. But all that to say this, um, you know, at the time we need to embrace diversity at the same time when again, it's, it's being polarized. And what I found, um, just in conversations with other parents, caregivers, educators, I host a podcast called the inclusion school podcast with my friend, Simone, and we were interviewing people, you know, school teachers, principals, book authors, and just like, what do we need to do to prepare this next generation to embrace diversity and inclusion? And, you know, we got a lot of the same answers and it was like, well, how are we teaching them like how to be like an ally? Like how, if they're like my daughter, a white girl, like how does she show up in this conversation? Cause mm-hmm. she just doesn't mm-hmm. know. And so that was the um, inspiration for the book. Little allies is I didn't know what to say to my daughter. So I'm sure there were a lot of parents that didn't know what to say. I mean, I still don't know what to say. I'm not yeah. perfect. I'm not an authority on the subject, but I do know what works with adults and really the, honestly, the book is really for adults to read. It's just got short little stories about things that happen in the schools, like in, in her yeah. school day. Um, and the main character, Allie, kind of comes to a realization at the end about uniqueness and differences and how to be there for kids that are different than us. And um, the book has a discussion guide and an okay. ally pledge so that they can, you know, parents can interact with their kids about it and make it more of a discussion because secret is, is that parents actually learn more from the conversation than the kids do. I mean, my daughter, after reading it was like, mom, most books are just silly stories. This one's about life. (laughs) So we had a really good conversation that I wouldn't have been able to have had we not had a tool, had we not had that resource. So that's, that's the hope is to give back in this way. Cause I know we're wrestling with this conversation and when to start it and how to have it. And it can just be an open conversation. Um, and if you stay curious with your kiddo, you, they will yeah. teach you something. I, I love promise. that about staying curious. And, and, and actually, I believe I've learned more from my 15-year-old and 18-year-old about inclusion and diversity you know, in, in terms of um, all, all sorts, you know, ranging from LGBTQ plus and racial inclusion. Um, it's just been an amazing journey for me to learn it from, from them. And, and what I've noticed about the children that I know closely is they take it in their stride. It's just, it's normal. Now, I may be in a privileged position to see it for my two girls. Other people may not see it that way. But I think actually that the, the younger people today are seeing that. But I love the fact you've got a book there which educates and actually probably educates the adults more. 
And I think there's a, there's a thing there in terms of, you know, um, helping people to show up differently and helping use that curiosity as a mindset, which I think is key. So Julie, there's, there's loads of things I could really talk about here. We've, we've talked for 45 minutes or here or so now, and we're going to come to the end of the podcast at this stage. Um, I, I'd love to ask you one other question, I think, which is, which is key from my perspective in that case. Um, in fact, two, because one of the questions is how do people find you? Um, I, I'm also wondering um, about one other question I've got, which is men as allies. Can you answer that in a couple of minutes? <laughs> how do we build more men to become allies and engage them in this journey of equality? Yeah. How do we get more fills out there? That is the question <laughs> that keeps me up at night because, you know, you think about it as a woman or if you're a person of color, just any, you know, underrepresented group, who's in the positions of power, right? Yeah. It's unanimously that male pale group and we need them engaged and there's really a big debate about this because it's frustrating to women to people of color to hear that but I can't think of a single time when we've had social change when that group hasn't been engaged right that's just unfortunately the world that we live in right now at the same time there's such a huge fear we had me too, black lives matter, you know, these, these social currents coming of like, it's a scary time to be a white guy. I mean, I had a well-intentioned friend share that with me recently. And that's that if, if, if that is the way white men feel, then we're, we're going to have a long road because fear, fear mm-hmm. leads to really bad behavior and defensiveness and a lack of willingness to change. And so we've got to quiet that fear. Yeah. Really got to start with that business case, to emphasize the human case and get men to take just baby steps. So much of my programming is like one thing, one thing you're going to do, one thing you're going to do. Okay. Come back. Tell me one more thing. And once you get people on the road, you know, I I use the analogy of a swimming pool, you know, like when you're learning to swim, you don't dive in the deep end, but a lot of people do that, (laughs) you know, right. Yeah. Go to the baby pool. Yeah. Dip your toe on the stairs. Like it's the same type of thing. Like just edge in, stay in the water, get to the deep end. Eventually there's no rush. There's no rush. Just start with some small steps first. Yeah. I love that. I think that's a great, great point. Just start with the small steps and just edge in. And eventually we'll get it. How do people go about finding you if they wanted to also you're in the States, but with, with the world we've worked in the last 15 months, that's irrelevant. Um, of course. Uh, our website is nextpivotpoint.com. So those resources that I mentioned, books, um, lots of free content that you can dive into. I'd encourage folks to follow us there. And we're on social media too, with that same handle, Next Pivot Point. Uh, we also have a Little Allies account for the children's book, The Little Allies, that we really just try to shape that conversation earlier. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is I post daily on LinkedIn. So if you're okay wanting to keep some small doses uh, in the places that you hang out. Um, we try to post some meaningful content every day there as well. Julie Kratz. That's perfect, actually. Yeah, Julie Kratz, K-R-A-T-Z, for those who are listening to that as we say it. Julie Kratz, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm sure there's more questions you can ask another day, but thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to um, working with you in the future again. Oh, thank you so much. This was a really fun conversation. So that concludes this episode of Sparks. Thanks for listening. We're always looking for ideas on how to drive this podcast forward. So if you've got comments, please leave them via a review of our show, along with your rating, or send us an email to sparks at eveningconsult.com.